Welcome to session seven of our new members class entitled Relationships and Leadership in the Church. Um, my name is C.B. Etter. I'm so thankful for all of you going through the class. We uh, love what God's doing in your life, and we're so eager to help in any way we can to help you grow in your passion for Jesus. Um, in the first part of this series, we've been discussing God's plan for us as individuals. However, God's plan for us doesn't end with our personal relationship with him. He has called us to join together with other believers in a very practical way in the church. And the Bible describes this as being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit in Ephesians 2.22. And in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, after the brand new Christians just got saved and were added to the church, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for saving us, those of us who have repented of our sins and believed in you. And I pray that you would cause that same devotion that uh, characterized the early church, that devotion to you, Jesus, that devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Lord, I pray that that would be the case for us as well, that we would be devoted, committed disciples for your glory. And use this session to do that even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the difference between an individual believer and the church is the difference between a lumberyard and a house. Uh, the lumberyard contains all the elements for a house, but it's not a house until those elements have been practically joined according to the plans of the designer. Likewise, individual believers must be practically joined together according to God's plan if we are to be a dwelling for his glory. These joined individuals are known as the church. And let's look at this first subheading here, the church. Look at a quote by John Stott. If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must also surely be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? And it's so true. You know, the, the church all throughout the New Testament, you just see uh, Christians just committed to their churches, and and that's the way the gospel is advancing uh, throughout the whole world at that time. And um, you didn't see isolated believers kind of wandering around without uh, real commitment to the local church. You had Christians who were really devoted to the local churches as they were getting planted, and that, that's really to be our pattern and our norm as well. We can't just live life just thinking, oh, it's okay just to have Jesus and me and have sort of that kind of mindset. We also need to have Jesus and we. Um, we need to have Jesus and me deep down and strongly ingrained in our soul to where we have a deep personal relationship with God like we've been looking at in the beginning of this series. But we also need to focus on Jesus and we as well. You know, we can't... Um, really look and say, hey, you know what, I love Jesus, but I'm not really, I really don't love his church. We want to look and say, no, I, to love Jesus is to love the people for whom he died, and I want to do whatever I can to play my part in the body of Christ. A, describing the church. The Bible describes the church in a variety of ways. Each of these gives us different insight into the multifaceted character of the church. I love these. Uh, first, we're described as God's people. This description emphasizes God's choosing particular individuals, calling them out of the world, and gathering them together as his own. This choosing also highlights the fact that the church is not an invention of man, but rather something that originates from and is established by God himself. 
we also see that the church is people and not an organization or structure. And you see that in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love that. The second one is uh, God's family. We are. We really are God's children. God has adopted us into his family. He is our father, our Abba Father, um, you know, that we are so, so thankful to have in our lives now um, because he has adopted us. He has saved us, and he's adopted us into his family. We are his children now. This description emphasizes our particular relationship to God as his people, as his adopted children. We call God our father and Jesus our brother. Ephesians 2.19 says that we are members of God's household. We're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. We're no longer foreigners or aliens, but we are fellow citizens, and we are members, actually, of God's very own household. I love that. And that same phrase is in 1 Timothy 3.15, that you might know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, in God's household. Um, that phrase um, is describing the church, God's household, um, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. I love that. Uh, the third description is of God's flock. You know, we we are his sheep, the, the, the sheep of his pasture. Um, this description emphasizes God's care and protection for the church. He cares for us. He protects us. You know, sheep are the most helpless of all animals and must rely completely on their shepherd for survival. Thank goodness we have the Lord Jesus, as it says in John ten fourteen. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And he also says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Thank you, Lord. The fourth description is the army of God. This description emphasizes our relationship to God as king and our function in advancing his kingdom in the earth. Um, in Colossians 4, 11, uh, the word of God describes... Uh, us as we are fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And then in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs or civilian pursuits uh, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. It's a great, great scripture. Uh, but the mindset of a soldier, you know, Paul's speaking, speaking to Timothy there, that we are on a mission, we are in a war, and, and, and the importance of entering into this spiritual warfare, of living for Christ and opening our eyes to the spiritual realities and the great need uh, to, for the gospel to advance to the ends of the earth is so important. Um, five, we're described as Christ's body. Um, the church is described as the body of Christ. It's beautiful. This description emphasizes our vital union with him through faith, and our dependence upon him as our head. And 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, point six um, is that we are described as um, God's building. This, dis- this description emphasizes God's dwelling among us. His presence is not limited to a building, but is ever-present in and among his people. Um, that was represented in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but now... The Holy Spirit dwells actually within us. His presence, the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within us. And it also emphasizes that Christ, um, Christ as the foundation of the church and the one on whom all else is built. So we are being built together, Ephesians 2.22 says. Um, 
to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And then in 1 Peter 2, we see that we are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, that you know, we mentioned this earlier, but it's important to recognize that we really do need to be built together in order to become a dwelling. Uh, we can't just have a bunch of Christians who are sort of isolated bricks or isolated stones that are like, oh, I don't want to be built together with other stones or built together with other bricks. If we kind of try to stay away from the church, it's, it's almost like um, we have a pile of bricks, but we don't have a house. And what God's purpose is, he wants to build us together with not just our own family, but also build us deep into the body of Christ so that we can be a dwelling. Um, seven, Christ's bride. Uh, this description particularly emphasizes God's unique love for his church and his commitment to bring her to perfection. And God has a special love for his bride, the church. He loves the whole world, but there's something special about his love for his bride. And that's a beautiful thing. And we want to really revel in that as his people because uh, he really loves us so much. In fact, Ephesians 5 when it talks about husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, um, and and talks about the, the dynamic of um, you know the church being radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, that Christ died for that to happen. And then it says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Our marriages are meant to image forth that type of sacrificial love um, one to another, and, and for us as husbands to really love our wives just as Christ loved the church and to display that type of unique, special love to our bride. Um, you know, we see three other concepts clearly intimated in these descriptions. First, the relatedness of the church. It's a family, a body, it's a building, all made up of different parts, vitally linked to make the whole. The second, we see the, the growth of the church. It's a body, it's a building, it's a a flock all are built or they grow. There's a dynamic to their existence. That's exciting. And then third, the mission of the church. An army in particular is involved in taking and defending territory as a reason for its existence. That's right. I love that image of the church being an army. You know, we're going forth proclaiming Christ, um, and we want to see the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth because we know that when the gospel goes to, to the ends of the earth, then the end will come. And we want to have a heart to just reach out to to all the peoples of the earth and um, and and be the army, be on mission, take a a warfare mindset instead of sort of a peacetime mindset. Um, let's look at the purposes of the church. The church has a threefold purpose within which we can identify um, a variety of tasks that it performs. Um, the church, as described in Acts, exemplifies all these qualities. And I read the Acts 2.42 passage to begin. But it talks about, you know, in verse 44, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. Um, they were very generous. Look at that. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love that image. I mean, they were on fire for Christ together. It wasn't just one person. It was just they were together and really loved 
worshiping the Lord. You know, one primary purpose of God's gathered people is to worship Him. We are a chosen people to declare His praises. And, you know, one of our uh, our church motto is exalting, proclaiming, and enjoying Jesus Christ. And one of the, the most important things we do when we gather is to exalt Christ, to lift God up in praise and to thank Him for who He is, and to be a God-centered church worshiping God through everything we do. Um, secondly, for edification. Uh, to edify means to build up or to strengthen. This word summarize, summarizes the purpose for our relationships and act, activities inside the church. We are to build one another up until we reach maturity. And even in relation to the spiritual gifts that God gives us, we see that, um, that the spiritual gifts are given to edify the body, now, with the exception of the gift of tongues, where the gift of tongues is given to edify oneself. Um, unless there's a tongue given publicly with an interpretation where the whole church could be edified by it. Um, tongues is a private, personal gift given to edify yourself. But the, with the exception of that gift, every other spiritual gift is for the edification of the church. And that's one of the things that we want to be focused on and passionate about, is to edify one another, to build one another up, to spur one another, spur one another on, sharpen one another, um, and be used of God in that way to encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And all the more as we see the day of judgment approaching, we want to really be passionate about building one another up according to each other's needs. Um, the third point is on outreach, and that's that's about mission. That's about evangelism. That's about church planting. That's about us getting the gospel out there and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord of all and reminding this world that there's no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And we need to tell this world and tell the world about Jesus. Um, the church has a mission, not only to itself, but to the world. And the mission would include evangelism and, and a wide variety of mercy ministries as well that uh, that involve you know caring for the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, that matters to the Lord also. And again, our church motto is exalting, proclaiming, enjoying Jesus Christ. And we've sought to capture those purposes there, um, enjoying Christ. You know, one of the things about our church that we really want um, you to understand is we want to make sure that our personal relationships with Jesus are so sweet to us that we actually just take time to enjoy the fact that we are the children of God, that we're born again, that we're saved, that we're heading for heaven. And so often the Christian life is is sort of caricatured as this heavy, heavy uh, thing that really sucks the joy right out of your life. And that that's, couldn't be further from the truth. We're meant to enjoy Christ to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says is the, the first duty of man and the, the goal of our life. Uh, see, the forms of the church. There is only one universal church, but that church takes a variety of forms from the perspective of God and man. First, you have the invisible church. This is all people in heaven, and earth who have ever been God's people. That's the invisible church. Um, secondly, the universal church. This is all people on earth right now who are believers. Thirdly, the local or visible church. Uh, this describes people 
gather together in a particular locale like our church here, Christ Community in Reading, who have committed themselves to practically walk out their Christian life together. This commitment is to the spiritual authority God places in the local church, relationships with the other believers that God joins us together with, and the various works of service that we are to perform within the mission of the church. The local church is important for four reasons. First, it provides a place to put our commitment to God into practice. It provides a context for us to mature. It provides a place for us to discover and practice our particular spiritual gifts. It provides us protection from doctrinal error and the deceitfulness of sin. There's so many other purposes as well, but those are four good ones. Um, and then the true church. And this is an important point. Within, within any local church, there can be some mixture of true believers and professors of faith that are not truly converted. Um, and also, then you have genuine inquirers, like the God-fearers, the God, God-fearing Gentiles in the book of Acts. Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 and his statement in Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, reflect this possibility. And that's why 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. We don't want to be scared to really like, examine our hearts and, and say, man, Lord, you know, do I, is it real in me? Do I really love you? Do I really believe in you um, as my Lord? Have I really um, embraced wholehearted followership and devotion to you? Am I a true follower of you? Those kinds of questions are great because we want to make sure, you know, and that's one of the reasons we have this membership process. We want to make sure the people who become members of our church are first members of God's household and that they're born again. Sometimes when people become members of local churches, they start to think automatically that, that, that they're good, that they're good with God just because they go to church or that they're a member of a church or, and it's only faith in Christ, as we've talked about before, that saves. Faith in Him and Him alone. And uh, we must remember that and make sure that we truly are in the faith. Uh, second, um, spiritual leadership. Let's look at this topic. While God is ultimately Lord over His people, He has throughout history chosen to exercise His leadership through delegated authorities. In the Old Testament, we see the patriarchs, Moses and Joshua, the judges, priests, prophets, and finally the kings, Delegated to lead God's people. In the New Testament, Jesus gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's from Ephesians 4.11. To lead and care for the church. And um, leadership is most often the means God chooses to fulfill his purpose, his purpose. When God wants something done, he turns to an individual. He often turns to an individual to lead his people forward. And that's just in the design of God. Um, let's look at delegated authority. One. Jesus is the head of the church. The authority to rule and direct the church belongs solely to him. He, he is the one, he is the chief shepherd, and, and he is the, the, the ruler over the church. And it says in Ephesians 1, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And that's important to note that. Um, secondly, Jesus has delegated authority to others. Uh, Charles Simpson said, Jesus is the chief shepherd, but not the only shepherd. His desire is to raise up other shepherds who are delegated to extend his concerns to his people. And you see that in Acts 20, where the word of God says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit 
has made you overseers. Um, these men, pastors, are described in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And, um, and God wants us to really recognize that these are gifts to us from the ascended Christ. And uh, what a precious gift they are. Uh, first, apostles. Uh, these were men gifted to build, govern, and bring order in the church. Um, it's important for you to know that Christ Community Church is not an independent church. We believe that the local churches in the New Testament partnered together in the gospel and were joined together in close and deep union with one another. Uh, we're thankful to be a part of Sovereign Grace Churches, our family of churches that is committed to advancing the gospel together uh, to the ends of the earth through planting other local churches. We believe that church planning is the New Testament's methodology for how the gospel should go forth locally and to the nations. We also believe that local churches should be connected in partnership with other local churches the way that they are in the New Testament. We believe that there are no longer sort of capital A apostles in office who witnessed the resurrection of Christ like Peter and Paul did. Uh, those same men who carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote down the God-breathed words of Scripture. The canon of Scripture is closed. It's important to note that. But we believe that extra-local or lowercase a apostolic function, not the office, but the function, still should happen in a way that provides the kind of care, protection, doctrinal oversight, and mission partnership that you see happening in the New Testament. Our church was planted, Christ Community, in partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches in 2001. And from the very beginning, we have benefited greatly from the small a apostolic or extra local care that Sovereign Grace Churches has provided for our local church. We're so grateful for that ministry. Um, also, prophets. These are men gifted to bring edification, exhortation, and consolation to individuals or the church. Um, they're gifted to equip the church in this gift as well. Um, though there's no one today who prophesies with the authority that an Old Testament prophet did, the church still benefits from the spiritual gift of prophecy under the New Covenant. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted from Joel 2 the prophecy which says that in the last days, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Um, and in order to describe what was taking place during the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we believe that the last days are still going on until Jesus comes back. Um, heaven with Christ is the perfection that will come that causes prophecies to cease, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Heaven is when we will see Jesus face to face, as described again in 1 Corinthians 13. So heaven with Christ is when the last days will be over, when prophecy will cease. That is when we will no longer know in part and prophesy in part, but will know in full even as we are fully known. We believe that the Bible teaches that all of the spiritual gifts, including prophecy, are for today. And we want to cherish all of them, not just the, the sort of the big miraculous gifts. We also want to cherish every single one of the spiritual gifts and sort of the non-spectacular spiritual gifts as well. We believe that New Covenant prophets give oversight to those within the church who have been gifted with the spiritual gift of prophecy. And that is because 
that spiritual gift, when exercised, is to be weighed, tested, and subject to others for the sake of peace and order within the church. It's a blessing, but it's important to remember it's in part. And never should uh, a prophecy, a New Testament prophecy, be embraced with the authority that only the Word of God and the Scripture should have. That's a real important point. New Testament prophets also help equip those within the church with the spiritual gift of prophecy to use their gift in an effective and sound way so that they might build up the church in accordance with that gift's biblical goals of edification, exhortation, and consolation. You also have evangelists. Evangelists are men gifted to equip and mobilize the church to evangelize the lost. These are men often gifted as gatherers. They not only evangelize, but they galvanize the church and strengthen it for mission. Pastors, these are men gifted to guard, feed, and care for the church. Pastors or elders, um, we believe that term is synonymous in uh, God's word. They're generally the primary leaders in a local church. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time talking here in this session. The New Testament uses a variety of words to describe these men, including elder, overseer, shepherd, and bishop. Often pastors will also be gifted as teachers as well. When we speak about leaders and the rest of this outline, we'll be touching in on that, as I mentioned before. Um, teachers, these are men gifted to instruct and bring insight into God's word. Let's look at uh, a leader's responsibilities. God has delegated authority in the local church for specific purposes, and that authority is to be carried out in specific ways. It says, that, talking about David in the Old Testament, that he shepherded the people with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Uh, point one, the pastor's job description. He's called to lead. Um, this, clu- this includes receiving, imparting, and implementing, uh, planning and administering a vision for the church uh, that comes from the Word of God and motivating people to embrace that vision. It is both corporate and personal. Uh, a pastor leads both the church as a unit and individuals within the church. And in Jeremiah, the prophecy says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead with knowledge and understanding. And 1 Timothy 5.17, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Um, Secondly, B, uh, pastors are called to feed the flock. This includes nourishing the mind and the spirit through teaching, training, exhortation, and encouragement. John 21.17 says, Feed. My sheep, and that's one of the reasons why we hold teaching and preaching in such high, high regard in our church body. Because when we come together, we want to hear the word of God and be fed um, from the word, so that we grow strong and mature in our faith. See, um, shepherds or pastors are called to watch over the flock. A pastor, it, it's important for you to know, is responsible for protecting God's people under his charge. And that's one of the reasons why we have membership, is because we want to know who's under our charge as pastors. But we also want uh, all of us as sheep within the church to recognize who who are the under-shepherds that God's called uh, to watch over, keep watch over our souls as men who must give an account, as Hebrews thirteen seventeen says. We want those lines to be clear, and that's one of the reasons why membership, I think, is really important, and why the New Testament talks about the church being joined together, devoted to one another um, in that kind of way. Um, So pastors um, protect the church, and they look out for dangers from both without and within. 
false doctrine, bad company, sin, discouragement, all kinds of things we need protection from. It also includes intervening when people face these dangers. These interventions include prayer, encouragement, help, warning, correction, and rebuke, and at times, church discipline. Um, and there's an, an addendum at the back of the outline um, today on church discipline. I'd encourage you, please, to read that. We'll talk about that a little bit, the church um, new members class interview that you'll have at the end of the new members class um, if you desire to become a member. Um, and so look over the addendums at the end on church discipline and also um, divorce and remarriage. Um, Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This is why, I mean, it's so precious. God's people are so precious to him. He bought them with his own blood. And it says in the Old Testament, Proverbs, be sure that you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. And that's what we seek to do as under-shepherds here, as elders here at Christ Community. We want to pay careful attention so that uh, so that all of us in the church are healthy and growing and, and uh, you know, just really protected. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Uh, D, care. Uh, care would include all the above, but it has a special emphasis on the loving relationship between a pastor and his people. And th- this is really important. You know, I-, I want those of you who are listening and contemplating whether or not you want to be a member of our church to know that our church, we, we really love uh, we love one another, and we want the relationship between pastor and congregation, congregation to pastor, to be one of just depth and affection, and um, and that's that's really what we've been seeking to do for the glory of the Lord. It includes helping, comforting, support, encouragement. Um, John twenty one, take care of my sheep. Jesus said uh, to Peter, and you look at that heart in First Thessalonians. You know, we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. This is what the Apostle Paul's saying, that he and his ministry was like a mother caring for little children. Uh, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Um, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Um, the pastor's heart, it's not just what a pastor does that's important. It's the way he does it. It's not just uh, what he speaks, but it's the manner in which he speaks it. It's it's all of it is really important. We believe there are three key attitudes that a pastor or any leader within the church should have towards the people of God in the church. Um, a, servanthood. True biblical leadership is not about exercising power for personal gain um, or about ego uh, or vainglory, um, but it's for the benefit of those who we lead. And in Mark 10, you see that Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what all pastors should be like as well. That's what all of us as Christians should be like. We should be servants. And that's really important to take to heart. Um, J. Oswald Sanders says, True greatness, true leadership is achieved not by reducing men to one's service, but in giving oneself in service, selfless service to them. And uh, I love that. 
Um, grace. Pastoral leadership is not about forcing, manipulating, or intimidating people to do things, but it's about pointing God's people to the Word of God and helping them to go to the Lord in prayer for themselves and helping people to receive the faith and grace from God to do what the Word of God says. God's people need God's grace to prosper and uh, to be guided and to fulfill God's law. We want to lead with the same grace that God extends to us. Um, in Hebrews, it talks about he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. And it's important for us to really walk in a spirit of grace with one another. We really are, as a local church and, and as pastors here at Christ Community, and we really encourage this in all of our leaders, to be a gracious people, uh, not heavy-handed, um, not legalistic, but very grace-filled in the way we interact. Um, and, and I just believe that flows out from the spirit of Jesus. And that's how we want to be as well. You know, after the disciples fell asleep on Jesus three times on the night that he was betrayed, right before he went to the cross in Gethsemane, he just said, would you please pray with me for one hour? And and uh, they fell asleep on him three times. And every time Jesus comes back and he says these amazing words, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And look at those gracious words. He could have just rebuked them for falling asleep on him. He said, I'm going to die for you on the cross tomorrow. And, you know, what's up here? And he didn't do that. He, he was, your spirits are willing, but your flesh is weak. And that should be all of our attitudes toward one another in the body of Christ. If someone's a Christian, their spirits are willing. Um, that's every Christian. Their flesh is just weak. So when we see weaknesses in others, we don't want to judge them. We want to love them and be patient with them. And that's how we seek to be very Christ-like in our care here as a church. Affection. A pastor should love his people, and that love should be reflected in personal relationship. It doesn't mean that the pastor can be a best friend with everybody under his care, but that he relates with everyone out of a genuine affection and not simply as a function of his position. And... uh you see that in First Thessalonians in the passage I read earlier, that we loved you enough that we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you would become so dear to us. Uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful verse. My experience had led me to the conviction that pastoring was a personal relationship that existed beyond institutional responsibilities, Charles Simpson said. It's so true. Yeah, we're, there's you know a real heart that we have here to not look at ministry as a job. We want to, you know, not think of it as the church as an institution and be cold and distant one to another as the people of God. No, we want a warm, affectionate relationship where we love one another deeply. And um, I'm so thankful for the way that exists here. Um, here's some followers' responsibilities. They're, you know, in the church, just as leaders in the local church are responsible for certain actions and attitudes, towards those under their authority, so those who are being led have certain responsibilities as well. Submission. Uh, to submit means literally to yield under or arrange under. One theologian defines submission as voluntarily placing oneself under the protection of a divinely appointed authority. While obedience is what we do outwardly, submission is an inward attitude of the heart towards those God has placed in authority over us. It's done not out of fear, but out of trust and love toward both God and those he has placed in authority. It's important for us to 
to really not think of submission as a bad word. Um, it's very easy to do that. You know, in Romans 13, it talks that we should be submitted to the governing authorities, and we want to have an attitude of submission toward the governing authorities in our government and in our nation, and to pray and to pray for them and love them and, and to really uh, just ask God to be merciful to them and have that type of tender heart, not be self-righteous and, and, and uh, you know, demeaning and, and just seeing the worst in people. And, and, you know, that's not just true in relation to the, the Christian's relationship to the state, but also within the church. Um, you know, in relationship with husbands and wives, um, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. It's important to note that submission is not a bad word. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful, Christ-like word. Christ submitted to the will of his Father all the way to death in order to save us. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, and we also want to have an attitude of submission towards uh, pastoral care in all of our lives. And, and I count myself in that. I thank God for the other elders, the other pastors that serve on staff here at Christ Community. Those men are my pastors. I want to have that same type of attitude. Um, and, and no matter how long um, I'm a Christian, I want to never develop an attitude of being cynical toward or critical of um, or skeptical about you know, leadership and authority. I want to really come under it and be humble before the Lord. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Um, honor. To honor means to highly regard or respect, to value and prize. We honor our leaders by our responsiveness to them, our loving service with them, our prayers for them, our care about slander, complaining, gossip. Those things can really hurt a church, and it's important for us to really guard ourselves and guard our church from it as well together. Um, and not just in relationship to pastors, um, but also uh, to one another just in the church body. Um, there's a variety of other ways as well that we can show our appreciation and regard uh, for their position, their work, and their character. Um, in First Thessalonians 5, it says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. That's a beautiful beautiful thing. Um, financial support, we'll be looking at that more in the next section. We're talking about uh, finances within the church, but that's also another way to um, aid in the gospel's advance in the life of our local church. Um, D, safeguards and the exercise of leadership. Many people have a dislike for or a distrust of those in authority. Part of this is the sinful flesh. Part of it may be fear born out of bad experiences. And, and many people, many Christians have had bad experiences and um, in church life and have been hurt by other Christians and other Christian leaders. And, and we understand that. We recognize that. I've experienced that personally in the past. And, but we can't ever let the bad experiences of the past dictate what our attitude's going to be in the future. Um, we need to trust the Lord and step into, uh, you know, trusting Him and walking forward and believing that He's got good things in His Word for us when we come under the authority of those, uh, who are leading us spiritually in the Lord. Uh, personal responsibility. 
Each person must give an account of himself before God. Uh, while we are to submit to our leaders, we must never do so at the expense of our conscience or contrary to God's word. Submission is never blind obedience or mindless passivity. It's so true and so important. Neither is it being a doormat or a yes man. Um, it's so true. Secondly, understand the limits of authority. A pastor's authority differs depending upon the situation. A pastor has the most authority when dealing with matters of clear biblical command, a bit less when dealing with interpretation of the scriptures, less still when dealing with matters of wisdom, and very little to not at all when dealing with matters of personal preference. Ideally, mutual respect, humility, and teachability keep this from being an issue. And it's important to note that a, a pastor, or an under-shepherd, uh, we, we derive our authority from the Word of God. We are not the authority. God's Word is the authority. And our job is to point you and for us to point one another to the Word of God and to Jesus. He's the one who's ruling over us. Um, thirdly, a leader's character. The Bible gives a variety of character qualities that qualify a man for leadership. These qualities also keep a man qualified. The best safeguard is a man who exhibits these qualities in an increasing measure in his life. A man's gifting, charisma, preaching style, etc. is never a substitute for godly character. Um, fourthly, accountability. To be accountable means to be answerable to someone other than yourself. Uh, leaders should be committed to relationships with other men with whom they can honestly confess sin and seek counsel. And I mean, that's true for all of us, but it's very important for leaders. And also who will freely question and confront when warranted. Uh, for this reason, among others, leadership in a local church should be a plurality of elders who carry equal authority on a team. The senior or lead pastor has been described as, quote, first among equals by a Christian named Alexander Strzok who wrote a book um, called Biblical Eldership. And we believe that that's an important point um, and principle to uphold. This preserves the principle in Scripture that you see in Acts 15 where all the voices were heard at the Jerusalem Council, but James spoke up at the end to give direction on behalf of and with the consent of all. But uh, the, the elders and a plurality of elders, um, biblically we believe that a plurality of elders um, should lead the church forward, and, um, and we praise God for that. Uh, appeal. Um, anyone has the right to question, discuss, or disagree with any decision or non-essential doctrine in the local church, as long as they do so with a godly attitude and in a non-divisive way. Um, our commitment is to work out any such matters to the best of our ability, to bring peace and unity to the church and to individual relationships. If matters can't be resolved at one level within the church, you can take them to another level once you become a member. We as a local church also have the protection of accountability within our family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches. Any member of Sovereign Grace Church has the recourse to appeal for help to that local church's regional judicial review committee if ever there are concerns that a matter that the local elders handled was not handled in a way that honored the Lord and His Word. And I, I love that. I love that we're not an independent local church that doesn't have extra local care. There's recourse um, within our church um, to really care for one another and to hold one another um, just accountable in the Lord, hold leaders accountable, and that's important. 
Um, if matters still can't be resolved, um, even after all that, we will always release people from membership in the church to pursue the direction they believe God has for them. And as I mentioned, we have the church discipline addendum and the divorce and remarriage addendum at the end. Um, that'll be important for you to take a look at as well. But God's awesome, isn't he? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for just giving us gifts, um, ascended Christ. We're so thankful for blessing us um, in the church with uh, leadership that points us to you, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you would protect our whole church and cause us to love you, help us to be a grace Grace, grace, gracious church, Lord, that loves one another, where there's um, affection from pastor to congregation member and congregation member to pastor and for everyone in the church body that we would be that way for your glory and, and bring honor to your name in that way. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.